Guys, this is Joe just popping in to ask if you've signed up for your free marketing consultation with MDT Marketing yet. If you haven't, head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, get your free consultation today. Don't do it alone. Find the right partner. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the EdUp Experience, your podcast in higher education where we make education your business. You know what? Let me let me just say right now, I've been trying to do int- a new intro from the previous intro that I do, and I totally messed that up. Elvin Freitas, producer of the Edip Experience, kind of said, here's what you should say. I did it once last episode. I already screwed it up, uh, but that's what we do here. We like to fumble and bumble through things at the Edip Experience and not be perfect. That's what I think makes it fun. I do like, as you guys know, if you've been listening to the Edip Experience for a while, uh, when this episode airs, we'll have passed our 92nd... Uh, 90, how do I say that? 92,000th, maybe that's the way to say it. 92,000th download on our way to 100,000. And no small part to your attention, in your ears, listening to the brightest uh, and most influential minds in higher education. And also not in small part to um, the help of my guest co-host today. She's very humble, but she has come on the Edip Experience as a guest first, and we talked all about higher ed and business and industry. Um, she has ties to higher education, but also runs a huge organization, sales organization at a huge, massive uh, company. And um, she's going to bring her thoughts back into this episode uh, as a co-host so we can have a robust, great discussion. I have been uh, uh, just undying trying to find a great sound effect to introduce her. And I think I've done it. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. She is the manager, man, and let me just, boy, I'm off my game here. The managing director of sales for the Eastern United States at FedEx office, Lisa Honaker. <laughs> Lisa, how are you? I am fantastic, Joe. I always hold my breath on your sound effects because every time one, I'm not sure about the cash register. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a, I need to sit with it. Need to reflect. Completely out of your mind. Um, we'll, we'll work on it here. Um, I, I didn't have anything else, Lisa, and I feel like you give me a hard time no matter what I select. And I was like, Hey, managing director of sales. That's got an easy one. Uh, but I knew you wouldn't like it. <laughs> Should Maybe. I try again next episode? Maybe so. Okay. Well, there's always something left to be desired here at the Edip Experience, especially when I have Lisa on. She tells me that basically that I suck, so I'm going to keep working to impress her. I think I've impressed her, though, by bringing in an amazing guest for this episode. I say I, but I really mean Elvin, uh, our producer, who does all the scheduling, if you guys don't know that. Um, I found a special sound effect to introduce her. Let's see if she likes it. Her name is Mamie Voigt. She's always on point. She's the interim president at the Institute for Higher Education Policy. Mimi, how are you? Great to be with you, Joe. Thank you. Uh, th- I was holding my breath waiting for that sound effect, too. And it's, uh, that, was, that was data processing. Right? I see it. Yeah, I get it. I get it. All right. We're all about data, so I'm all for it. <laughs> I worked a long time to find that. I went through like 30,000 sound effects to get that right one. Um, ho- hope you enjoyed it. Mamie, thanks for coming on the, on the Edip experience today. Uh, I will apologize in advance. Apparently, I can't talk today. Um, but I'm going to give you the microphone. Um, and first, just level set for us. Talk to us about the Institute for Higher Education Policy and your work as interim president. What do you guys do and how do you do it? 
Absolutely. So the Institute for Higher Education Policy, or IHEP, we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan research policy and advocacy organization. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we work towards a world in which all people, especially students who historically been underserved by higher education, so students of color and students from low-income backgrounds, where all people have the opportunity to reach their full potential by participating in and succeeding in higher education. And we work towards that vision, work towards that big goal by focusing on policy-relevant research. You started off with the data. We are very data-driven, very evidence-driven in the work that we do in order to identify policies and practices and advocate for them um, in terms of changes at the federal, the state, the institution level, all in the interest of moving towards a more equitable higher education system where students have that opportunity to pursue the social and economic mobility that we know higher education can provide. So I like to just kind of come with whatever comes to mind, Mamie, and I, I think about the state of higher education. We've, as you know, as well as anybody, we've seen a couple of tough years in higher ed in general, although there have been some really good bright spots, right? We've seen, we've seen a number of institutions um, offer different modalities and the way they deliver education, whether they wanted to or not. We saw an amazing report that I know you helped chair from the uh, subsidized, I believe, by the Gates Foundation called the Post-Secondary Value Commission Report that really provided the first comprehensive uh, a cache of, of data that talked about education as an equalizer, who was being left out, what the stats were around that. And so I'm just going to kind of come with the question that comes to mind. From your perspective, is higher education still an equalizer or is it an equalizer to begin with in the first place? Is it the great equalizer, as many say? It's a it's a great question. And it really is is at the heart of a lot of what the post-secondary value commission um, that you mentioned was working towards to answer this question of what is college worth? Um, and really what we found through our work with the commission, through our research and, and collaboration with, the, with other organizations is that absolutely college is worth it. There is no question in the evidence that it is on the whole. However, outcomes vary quite a bit. And in particular, students of color and students from low income backgrounds are not reaping the same types of benefits from their higher education investment um, as their classmates are. And so there are these deep inequities in terms of who can access higher education, who can uh, and who is succeeding in completing their credentials. And then ultimately, a large part of what the Value Commission looked into is what are the returns uh, for students after college? And you know, this vision of higher education being a pathway towards a better living and a better life it absolutely is true, and yet there are still great disparities within the, the system. Um, you, you mentioned the challenges of the last several years, and that's exactly right. Those challenges have been incredibly acute during the pandemic, and what the pandemic has done is really uncovered a lot of these inequities that already existed, and it's deepened those disparities even further in terms of access to and success in college. And so what the Value Commission really, the, the work really hopes to achieve is to mobilize this movement towards 
a focus on the equalizing and building a more equitable system such that a person's chances of, of getting success uh, and building towards that better living and better life after higher education aren't influenced by the circumstances of their birth. And so that's very much at the core of the, the work of IHEP and the work of the, the Value Commission. So before I pass it to you, Lisa, I do want to just ask quickly, based on what you said, where you, I can't remember the exact words that you used, but but a coronavirus in particular has uh, intensified the inequities that exist, right? They, And is that because, what are some of the reasons? Is it is it because, you know, students from low income, first gen students maybe would have had access to higher ed, but instead coronavirus hits sick family members, they have to go back to work or work to put food on the table, further taking them away, hurting generational wealth because they didn't get in the system when they could have had an opportunity because coronavirus hit, like it's a, it's a cause and effect relationship that uh, coronavirus created. Yes. So, you know, when, when COVID hit, we already had uh, a lot of these inequities within the system. And then the people and communities who really bore the brunt of the pandemic, both the health consequences, the economic consequences, also were then the ones who bore the, the brunt of the educational consequences as well. So students who maybe had been on a pathway towards going to college, now they had a family member get ill or they had a family member lose a job and that impacted their ability to to go on to college because they needed the the finances to be able to support it so we've seen declines in enrollments pretty heavy declines in enrollments especially at community colleges and other less selective colleges and universities we've seen declines in applications for financial aid also uh, especially among, especially at Title I eligible schools and especially at schools with high proportions of students of color. And so that all of that is indicating, you know, declining enrollments of the very students who can benefit the most from all that higher education has to offer. And COVID played a huge role in that. You know, when we think back to the, the start of the pandemic, you know, March of 2020, higher ed had to change on a dime. Everybody, you know, society-wide had to change on the dime and higher ed was was certainly a part of that. You know, we switched all of a sudden to to virtual learning. And in many cases, students didn't have the equipment and the technology that they needed, didn't have the Wi-Fi access that they needed to be able to make that pivot really quickly. Um, for many students who are student parents, they all of a sudden had their kids at home with them uh, instead of, and without the childcare necessary to really focus on their studies. And in some cases, you know, working students lost their, their income uh, if they were working in the restaurant industry or in retail. Uh, and so all of those confounding factors really came together to, to just deepen this crisis for so many students. Now, higher ed also is doing a lot. You know, it also showed some, some glimmers of hope here about how higher ed can change on a dime uh, it, when needed. We saw a lot of schools, for example, move away from the SAT, ACT, you know, eliminate its consideration in admissions decisions because students didn't have safe access to the tests. Um, and, and so there's some really, I think, hopeful opportunities there about how we can, can change the system. Um, and then a lot of colleges also looking at how to now re-engage students. Um, re-engage students either who didn't go directly from high school to college or who were enrolled in college but stopped out 
uh, before they got to their credential and, and the stopped out for any number of reasons, but particularly um, because of the pandemic. And so colleges are looking at ways to, to bring adults back to higher ed. Now, Lisa, um, I want to pass it over to you. And and just to impress you, I want to say my my uh, amazing co-host, Lisa Honecker, today. Um, and I do want to ask you, Lisa, just real fast. It, 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 basically, everything Mamie talked about hurts a talent pipeline. You're hiring. You're a hiring manager of a pretty large staff. Is the battle for talent that we see written about all the time right now, is that a real thing in business and industry right now? And how real is it? Like how mission critical and how on your list every day is, hey, develop talent, find talent. And what is that talent pipeline? Is it drying up? Is it there? Lots of questions, Lisa. What a profound question, Joe. And that is item number one on every hiring manager's mind. Um, that's what keeps them up at night, regardless of industry, regardless of what layer of leadership you are in any organization. So, um, you know, even from kind of that frontline team member, uh, which we all know we go to restaurants and they're short staffed, um, but all the way up, it took me seven months to fill a sales manager position. Um, seven months, that is a long time. So, And the lost that, sales that come with not having someone, hypothetically, right? There's a lot more than just time in there. Exactly. Well, you know, you do the dual coverage thing and all of that, but then you're impacting the person in position, you're impacting that team. So yeah, you can put a Band-Aid on it, but um, that need for great talent, and we've talked about this a lot on your show, Joe, is what higher education brings to the table are those critical thinking skills, those problem solving skills, those collaboration skills, um, and all of those without that pipeline become a gap. And so um, as a hiring manager, please, Mamie, um, do everything that you can. And I know when Joe and I were researching uh, your organization, what we saw is this combination of leveraging data instead of intuition or feelings or you know anything that you can't put your hands on and marrying that with creative approaches to build those pathways. So I'm curious from your position and so eloquently laying out the impacts of the last 18 to 24 months, what are some of those creative solutions that you are out there um, offering to your customers, uh, to your clients, to people that you're consulting with to get people back into school? That's a, it's a great question, Lisa, and it's really at the, the crux of what so many colleges and universities are trying to figure out um, right now. Uh, you know, one initiative that, that we lead, it's called Degrees When Due, and through this initiative, we work directly with colleges and universities to bring students back, to do exactly what you're talking about, re-engage students who have stopped out with some college uh, and no degree. And what they do, what the strategy is, is taking a look at their data and reviewing transcripts of students. We call it doing a degree audit. Reviewing transcripts of students to identify those students who are so close to a credential. In some cases, they are just a few courses shy of achieving uh, and receiving that associate's degree. 
in a lot of this work is, is uh, focused at the associate's degree level. Um, and in some cases, they've actually earned all of the credits necessary for the credential, but they haven't actually received the award that they've earned. So you know, you talk about critical thinking skills and um, you know all of that 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 learning that happens through higher education. They've accomplished most of it, and they don't have the degree to show for it to bring into the workplace for employers to demonstrate their uh, you know their learning and what they've they've accomplished. Um, so we work with those institutions to one award those credentials to students who have earned them. And then two, to re-engage those students who are really close, uh, bring them back to college and help them get across the finish line. And in a lot of cases, the, the college needs to change something about what they're doing in order to bring those students back because the students left for, for a reason in the first place. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, it is the various circumstances of life that, that come up. Um, and in some cases, it's a barrier in place by the institution and so the uh, or by the college itself. So the college takes a look at what those barriers were and then identifies ways to remove them so that the student can can come back and and be successful. We actually just recently did two case studies of institutions that have done this successfully and what they found in some of their their work was that there was one course that was really serving as a barrier to students completing their, their credential. They'd finished everything else, but at one institution, it was a, um, a technology course that students hadn't finished. And in another school, it was a health and wellness course. They'd finished all of their other requirements for the degree. And so this raised questions at the institution about, well, what is the purpose of these courses? What are students learning? How and are there ways that we can make sure students learn those competencies that are important? Certainly, we want our graduates to, to be able to use technology and, you know, be focus on health and wellness. But there may be other ways to assess those skills so that they or to impart those skills um, so that students can then get that degree and move on to be successful in the workforce. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, Whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash add up. So before I um, pass it back to Joe, I actually read those two case studies and definitely incredibly creative. It takes a lot of time though to drill down to that particular individual who does that work and how is that um, able to be scaled up so that every institution can do something like that. It really does take time. And that's been one of um, you know, the big learnings from this endeavor is just how much time it takes and how limited the, the capacity is of, of many institutions, especially community colleges. 
Um, you know, in many cases, the the schools that we've seen be successful in this work, it's because they have one person or a small team of people who are really passionate about it, and they hunker down and, and get it done. Where it can be really impactful, though, is when it becomes a routine part of uh, an institution's business. You know, when they're looking at and conducting degree audits, say, on an annual basis of all students, including those who are enrolled, so they can catch any problems or any barriers before the student stops out in the first place. Um, you know, and that, that leads into the role of policy in this as well, especially at the federal level. We've been seeing some really exciting conversations happen uh, in Congress about investing in institutions for these types of completion efforts, for evidence-based, research-driven efforts that can help get more students across the finish line and into the workforce and into those, those positions that you are seeking to fill. Um, this, this college and retention fund that um, Congress is considering right now would do just that. It would put more dollars and resources in the hands of colleges who are trying to really make a difference for students and help them get over those final hurdles so that they can earn their credentials. Maybe that what's is this interim president business? You know, it sounds like you're just so polished on this information. When are they going to drop that interim title for you? What's <laughs> going on over there? Yes. So I have been uh, in the midst of a, a presidential search right now. Our, my predecessor, um, Dr. Michelle Asha Cooper, she served as president of IHEP um, for quite some time, for about 13 years, um, did a fantastic job serving us so well that the Biden administration uh, snatched her up once they took office. And she is now serving um, in a senior leadership role over at the Department of Education and, and really working to make some of these reforms reality through federal policy. Well, you can't say much, but I can sure say it. I don't know what else uh, you got to do over there, but uh, it sounds like co-chairing the the post value secondary value commission report, all the work that you're doing. Um, boy, would they be lucky to have you as president moving forward. And that brings me to our next question, Mamie, and I'd like to um, uh, find out a little bit about our guest. And in fact, I've been asking two questions, but it's kind of unfair because um, Lisa was the one that that on a previous episode that said, "Yeah, you should ask this too." Um, and and so you get to pick which one you want to answer. Are you ready for a question kind of unrelated to higher education? Sure, go for it. There we go. For no money, maybe. No money here at the end of experience. We have no money. Um, uh, first, uh, I want to ask you, you can pick which one you want to answer. Number one, if there was a song maybe playing at the at your uh, your institution or an institution you walked into to deliver a talk and you were getting on a stage... What would your entrance music be? What's that one song that would be playing to introduce you? Or you can answer what Lisa's question is. What's the dream vacation that you need to take maybe after the last couple of years? Oh, man, I think I have to go. I, I think I have to go with the vacation because I have just been dreaming of getting on a plane again and, and going on vacation after, you know, we after it's all safe. Um, my and I'm hoping that's going to come soon because I, I have a five year old daughter, so she just became eligible for her vaccine. So my husband and I are plotting where are we going to go uh, when she's fully vaccinated. Um, and Costa Rica is actually top of our list for a for a family trip together. Um, my husband and I went uh, a few years ago before she was born, and it was just fantastic wonderful beaches and the rainforest. Um, and I think she would just love it being able to see all these cool animals. She loves watching TV shows about 
um, about animals. And so being able to see some of them up close and, and, and personal would be fantastic. And like the idea of just sitting back and relaxing on a, it, it is, it is Wild Kratz. Yes. <laughs> Lisa, it is Wild Kratz. It's her favorite show uh, that she watches all the time. So being able to show her some real Wild Kratz and, and sit and relax on a beach after everything that the last you know 20 months has brought us would be just fantastic. When are you going to do it? I, hopefully early next year. Yeah. Get that shot in her arm and, and get through the holidays and then, and then head out hopefully. All right. Well, we're going to hold you to it. Maybe we're going to check in with you and say, did you ever take that vacation? That's why. Yes. Hold me accountable, that. please. <laughs> um, so, and that is a, I think it's an important question. I want to ask uh, this to you as uh, interim president at the Institute for Higher Education Policy with a five-year-old um, at home with all the disruption, you know, you've, you've, um, you could have had your, did you have her in school or you could have had her at home that causes disruption to women in the workplace. That's been a big talked about area of higher education, really in, in business and industry in particular is, is how women have, have, uh, navigated through coronavirus, especially if they're a primary parent taking care of kids, those kids are doing online school. Uh, I will tell you my, um, I was lucky enough. My kids didn't have too much of a disruption, but my wife was doing homeschooling while I would go and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so hard to do. And it's it's a continual issue that's being discussed. And we're seeing that the connection to that is what's happening with the great resignation uh, across business and industry, but specifically in higher education, it seems like there are going to be a lot of people that are leaving our industry. What's that going to do to the students? What's that going to do to the data, to the to the um, inequity in higher ed if we don't have the right people focusing on the areas? This is kind of a big spectrum of problems altogether that we have to solve. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it really is. You put it nicely there. It's a big spectrum of problems um, that we're going to have to solve. You know, we and certainly experienced it. I certainly experienced it acutely during this this time. My my daughter was home with me. She was three and four and now five uh, amidst the pandemic and and, you know, having to juggle working at the same time as, as taking care of her is, is enormously challenging as so many parents um, across the, the country really found out this year. And student parents in particular, you know, that student parents are often juggling parenting and school and work all at the same time. And then, you know, COVID just, just upended all of that um, e even more so. And I, I think it, it helps to also put in perspective the again the inequities that we see by by gender already in terms of um, outcomes post-secondary outcomes you know we when we look at the access and completion numbers women are actually doing pretty well in higher ed in terms of um, you know graduation rates but then when as part of the value commission we looked more closely at their earnings returns after college and there are enormous wage gaps um, that still exist, and that's across the board, and then including at individual programs. So, you know, a, a gender gap for students graduating with the same credential from the same school, um, women going on to earn far less than their, their male counterparts um, in the first year after college, and that gap just grows. Uh, and one thing that was really startling from these findings was how the gap is bigger in some higher paying fields like STEM fields and business fields where women are even more underpaid. And so I think that it gives, uh, uh, it, it brings the, the workforce 
role into the conversation even more squarely as well. You know, there's there's a role for higher ed to do its part in breaking down the inequities that exist in, in who's getting through college and, and the, the learning that they're um, uh, exposed to there. And then there's a role for employers as well in making sure that they are um, paying their employees fairly and equitably. And to your point about the challenges of, of childcare um, and, and um, the, all the work associated with it that still often falls towards, towards women. Um, there is a, a critical role to play there in terms of, of employment. There's, there's also a role to play for um, the federal government in terms of policy making in this arena too. Um, you know, for example, the college completion fund that I mentioned earlier would invest in colleges to, to move forward some of these approaches that can help especially student parents or working parents, parents, uh, uh, working students, sorry. Uh, to navigate some of those challenges to, to higher ed. Um, the feds are also talking about increasing investment in the Pell Grant uh, and making various steps towards doubling the Pell Grant, which is an investment in students from low-income backgrounds to be able to afford college. And all of that helps um, to, to set students up for, for greater success in college and after college as well. Wow. Lisa. That is so significant. So out of all of those things, what is the one that you are most excited and most encouraged about? Yeah, great question. Um, and it's hard to pick just one because there has been so much um, interest in movement right now. I think the, the one that is especially exciting is the college completion fund, mostly because it's new. It's a new way of thinking about things and a new way of thinking about how the, a federal investment can really drive reforms and improvements and capacity building um, on the ground at, at institutions where students are, are directly being served. This would be a, a first of its kind grant program that would provide to states to um, develop plans to then provide that information to, to institutions, uh, to, provide, to provide that funding to institutions to be able to, to really make changes for students. And that could be really transformative um, to, to push change in that way. Joe, I'm gonna pull you back in here in a second um, because I know you've got a lot of um, experience in this area as well, but what do you see, Mamie, as the two biggest roadblocks to making those things happen? Yeah, you know, one of the, the big challenges is getting that funding passed through Congress and getting it enacted. Um, you know, this is the completion fund that I've been talking about. It, it started as a $62 billion proposal from uh, President Biden. It then got scaled back to about $9 billion in negotiations. And now it is, they're talking about $500 million. And that's been wow. as the, you know, various cuts that have happened throughout the process and the, just the, the negotiations and the way that Congress, Congress operates. Um, and so, you know, we had been super excited about $62 billion. That would have been truly transformative for higher education. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, the 500 million, um, it's still incredibly important and, and something that is, is something to celebrate because it will provide both some initial funding and this vehicle 
for hopefully future investments to be able to continue to go to institutions. So, so the actual dollars and cents of it, Lisa, is is a big part of the challenge, and just the time that it takes for for Congress to you know get things through our legislative process. Congress is slow. I mean, you know, the the, the federal government might might be slow. I mean, that's been a knock on higher ed, right? Maybe for for a long time, higher ed super slow. And uh, it, it, it brings me to my question because you, you brought it up earlier and, and you talked about it, this, this group of folks, you know, with, when you talk about funding, you talk about re-engagement, uh, you talk about higher ed models, financial, uh, financial sustainability, all, uh, all leading many colleges to look at the quote unquote, some college, no degree market. Right. There's so many students, it's actually it's an actual part of the market, right? So I know at my institution and, and for my colleagues, we talk and we, okay, well, how are we segmenting? How are we looking at geography? How are we looking at, you know, undergrad potential students, graduate students? Oh, there's some college, no degree market, transfer student market. So there, you're talking about, a, I don't know how many millions, I think it's like 8 million students have some college, no degree. I don't know. I, I'm not the data person um, <laughs> at all. That's you, Mamie, but there's a lot. And it feels like if we could just figure out how to re-engage that part of the population, not only would that help institutions find success in their financial models, but it would bring um, it close some of the gaps that exist, right? Wage equity, uh, the first gen student completion, the you know all of the people of color and getting their degrees completed. What does higher ed need to do to really truly engage this some college no degree market? Yeah, and you you mentioned we're the data people. It's 36 million. That's how many people are out there with some college no degree right now. I was only off by 28 million, just for the record. <laughs> I mean, 36 million, that's a lot, a lot of people. And it's it's a lot of human potential that is out there, um, you know, where we could invest more to help those students get to the finish line. Um, and it's going to take doing things differently, though. It's going to take colleges and universities recognizing the full picture of the, the types of barriers that students experience both in the classroom and out of the classroom and identifying any of the barriers that the institution itself um, is, is maintaining that's keeping students from, from being successful. Um, you know, most colleges are pretty big bureaucracies, and that's a lot to navigate for a student, um, especially a student who hasn't interacted with higher education or a big bureaucracy like that before. Uh, and so breaking down some of those barriers, building out really clear pathways to a degree for students so it's clear what classes to take so that students can get into those classes at the right time to be able to, um, to make progress towards their degree addressing the the unmet need the, the cost of the degree that's and that includes both the tuition costs but also the living expenses that students need to be able to to finance um, if they're to be successful in college if students don't have enough financial aid uh, enough grants and need-based aid there to to cover their tuition and non-tuition expenses then they're at risk of working too many hours that ultimately hurts their ability to to learn as much in the classroom and complete in a timely way um, or they take on a lot of debt which we can, can impact the types of inequities that we see in terms of, of wealth accumulation after college uh, or they end up stopping out because they don't have the the funds to actually pay the bills 
Um, so there's a number of things that that institutions need to to do to make those changes. You know, one thing that we focus on quite a bit at IHEP is data and the use of data to really inform policies and practices and changes. And that can happen at the um, kind of 30,000 foot level of making sure institutions should regularly be looking at what are their completion rates, what are their retention rates, um, and how do they vary based on race, ethnicity, income, gender, and then that's at the 30,000 foot level, but then digging deeper and saying, well, what's the cause of those gaps that we're seeing? And what can we as an individual institution do to, to change those trends and, and get students on the pathway to completion um, in the most efficient and, and effective way possible? And data can be really powerful in helping to uncover those inequities and point the way towards solutions. Hmm. You know, I, I want to just note, as you answered that incredible, uh, uh, you gave an incredible answer to, the, to that question, Lisa and I trade notes, and one of the notes that she wrote down was $8 million, um, which is why I said that, and you said $36 million. So thanks, Lisa, for embarrassing me here on the EdUp Experience. I'm here to make you actually look like a star. <laughs> Over to you, Lisa, if you have any more questions, or, or I can move into our final two. I just have one other thing, which is on the equitable value explorer. Um, is that something that a student or prospective student would use as a tool or who's using that tool? That's a great question. Probably not. So it's not, we didn't design it to be a tool for a, a student or a prospective student. Um, it, it's pretty data heavy. Um, and so certainly a student could could work on wading through it. But who we really intend to be the audience for that tool is institutions themselves. Um, you know, I, I talked about the, the power of data and what we aim to do with the Equitable Value Explorer is to put the power of that data into the hands of colleges and universities in looking at the extent to which they are providing equitable value for their students in looking at especially those economic returns after college. Um, and so we uh, hope that that will serve as a, a good tool for institutions to inform their policies and practices. And it's also going to spur our next phase of this work, a good part of which will focus on working with states to be able to submit even more fine grain data to get at those equity considerations. With the data that we have access to on colleges across the country, there are some limitations. We don't have, have earnings data by race, ethnicity, for example. We can't disentangle, disentangle the earnings of students who completed their credential from those who didn't complete their degree. Um, but if we work more directly with states and with institutions themselves, like the University of Texas system, which has sort of a special spot in the Equitable Value Explorer, when we work directly with, um, with a system like that, they can really interrogate those inequities in greater detail to, to inform policy changes even more deeply. And so through this next phase, we'll be working with more states. Um, and we're working to, to recruit some of those states now to participate in this data-driven effort to help them uh, through a community of practice really find some, some promising strategies to work against the type of inequities that we see in the data. What an important shift that's been maybe to, these aren't, I've got two final, final questions for you, but I just wanna say that as somebody who's worked in higher ed for, for a couple of decades, 
uh, first of all, uh, kudos to you and the others. I know Dr. Millie Garcia was, I think she was co-chair with you. We interviewed her, her here on the Oedipus Experience. She was fantastic too. Uh, it's really hard to please everybody in higher ed. Um, you know, you put a, you know, somebody puts out something like the post-secondary value commission report, which was the first of its kind report. It's easy to look and go, well, what about this? And you didn't include this, or how do you include that? But it's the first time I know of, we really had some, a, a meaningful point of data that talked about value. Um, and it's been a shift a little bit because, you know, us news world report and you have rankings and. Um, I always joke that higher ed's the one business uh, with lead institutions where you celebrate the number of people you don't um, accept and you put out a press release about it. You know, we had 26,000 applications and accepted 3,000 and it's a record year for us. And I go, you man, imagine Amazon doing that like or another company, big company saying we, we didn't make 23,000 sales. Hooray. So, you know, it's, it's helped shift the narrative to discussing value uh, of at a community college, discussing a return on investment versus the elitism that it's built in, in some, you know, into higher ed in general. There's been a little bit of a narrative shift, and I think that your work has helped to do that. Um, how do you respond to that? Yes, you know, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to, to shift the narrative here and build a movement towards a focus on equitable post-secondary value. You know, we should be looking at how well institutions are doing it at generating social mobility and economic mobility for students who've traditionally not been served well by higher education. So students of color and students from low-income backgrounds, that's what we should be focusing on. And that's where leaders should be focusing their attention, not on how exclusionary um, you know, they can be. It should be about how well they're serving students um, and what value add they are providing to students and to society as a result of the education that they provide. And that focus on equity um, is really a core component of the commission's work. And you know, we purposely didn't answer the question of what is college worth just on the whole. It was answering the question of what is college worth for specific groups of students, for Black, Latinx, Indigenous students, underserved Asian American Pacific Islander students, students from low income backgrounds and women, students where we see in the data they're not being served as well as as their peers. You know, it's a bottom line. It's really about pushing for higher education, generating a better life and a better living for everyone. Uh, and that's really at the heart of this work. Love it. Well, um, we have two final questions for you, Mamie. By the way, it's been amazing to have you. Uh, we do want to know what we missed. What didn't we ask you about the Institute for Higher Education Policy that you either hope to talk about today, something that you have that's coming up? Of, of course, drop your website, plug your website away to our listeners. Anything that we should be following, looking for in the future, basically anything you want to say at all, take a couple minutes and do that. And then secondly to that, Mamie, what do you think the future of higher education is going to look like? Yes, so uh, you've asked a lot of great questions. So I'll just I'll use the opportunity to plug our our website. Um, it's www.ihep.org. Um, you also can find the work of the Post Secondary Value Commission at postsecondaryvalue.org. And we also you know talked a lot about our degrees when due work at, around. Um, um, reverse transfer and, and adult re-engagement, you know, really bringing back 
students from in that some college no degree population will be coming out with a final report from that initiative in early next year so folks can can definitely keep an eye out for that which will be coming coming down the pipeline um, and then in terms of you know what the, what the future holds for higher education you know what i really hope that it holds is this more intensive and intentional focus on equitable value for students on this equity focus rather than the exclusionary focus and building us towards a, a world in which all students regardless of race or income or background or circumstance really can have their lives transformed through higher education so that we make our way towards higher ed providing that better living and better life for all students and so that is what I am keeping my eye on, that's what we're keeping our eye on uh, at IHEP and, and what I hope that we can all achieve together in the years to come. Amazing. You say it well, Mimi. You sell it, say it very well and clearly crystallize the, the value that you're bringing. I really enjoyed our conversation today. How about you, Lisa? Absolutely, I learned a ton. Uh, same here. Um, first, as, as I close out this episode, I wanna again, Again, thank my amazing co-host who's visited me many times, um, always uh, bringing something new to the conversation. I will continue to try to find a sound to introduce you, Lisa, that you're, uh, that is acceptable to you. I'm going to keep trying, and one of these days you're going to just go, that's the one. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm going to keep trying. Very good. Um, I feel like she's my teacher, maybe um, in, in my sound effect board now. And of course, our amazing guest today, um, Mamie Voigt, she is the interim president um, and she is, should be the president, right? I mean, that's that's what we're, um, well, that's one of the takeaways I have today is that she needs to be uh, the president as soon as possible uh, at the Institute for Higher Education Policy. Um, she won't say that, but we will. Um, and Mamie, what a pleasure it was. Thank you for coming on and speaking so freely about your work and the work that you support. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Lisa. This has really been great to chat with you today. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Edup Experience. You've just ed up. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup.